Well, if you're, I see a few guests out there, and if you're a guest with us, you happen to have joined us as we're working our way through the second letter to the Corinthians, and we're in chapter 8, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 through 15. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read the passage to you? We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased by your and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Amen. This is God's word. He can be seated. So again, those first few verses, verses 1 and 2, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty had overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So uh, to get a little background about why he's doing this and understand what's going on, Paul had, had been encouraging the churches to uh, give to the church in Jerusalem. And the reason for that is that Jews, as they grew older, especially as they, uh, the husband felt like he's ailing physically and he might not have long, they would move to Jerusalem. And then, as is now, usually the husband passes first, and so the widow would be left there in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem had an abundance of Jewish women who were up in age and did, didn't have any means of support. So this, they... Um, the temple would provide 
on meager rations for the widows to, so that they could survive. Now, when the Christians started to be uh, recognized as something different from the, the Jews, the Christians set up the same kind of system where they took care of the widows. We see that uh, discussion in Acts chapter 6 about the Grecian widows were upset because they thought the Jewish widows were getting a better portion than they were getting, and that's why we have deacons. But um, James had asked Paul to remember the poor, and so Paul took up these collections to help the church in Jerusalem provide for the widows that were there in Jerusalem. And that's why he was taking a collection of all the churches. And he had previously informed the Corinthians about this need. He shared the example of the church of Macedonia, the churches, I should say, of Macedonia, that revealed the grace of God so, so that the Corinthians might respond in the same gracious way. Those churches, that, that is the Macedonian churches, had acted on the grace of generosity. God's grace to be sacrificially generous is given to all who are in Christ. Some are going to act on it and others will not. Paul's hope is that the example of the Macedonians and how they responded would inspire the believers in Corinth to respond in the same way, to, to take that, that grace that's given them and give generously to the need in Jerusalem. The word grace occurs eight times in this chapter and the next, and five of those occur in the first nine verses of this chapter. It's evident that Paul saw generous giving as a product of the grace of God in our lives. It's evident that, that the natural order of man is selfishness. Amen? That's how we are, that's how we're born. Right? One of our first words is mine and no, right? But the grace of God helps us, teaches us the generosity of God to be more like God. The Macedonian churches were experiencing a time of severe affliction, as Paul puts it. Paul calls it a test because affliction is a test of our spiritual maturity. And, it, and in Romans 5, it says that it teaches us endurance. When Paul writes of a severe test of affliction, I think today we can hardly imagine the pressure that those believers must have been under. The word, Greek word gives a sense of being crushed by life. If we were to really understand exactly what they were going through, we would probably consider it uh, unendurable. They were experiencing extreme poverty. The great turn of the century New Testament scholar Alfred Plummer translated it perfectly as their deep down to the depth poverty. They were at the bottom. We might say dirt poor. And for most of us, it's a major stretch to relate to deep poverty in the ancient setting. End of quote. If you have only a couple decent meals a day and a few changes of clothes and transportation available to you, you are wealthy by standards of that time. Much better off than they were. 
And yet they gave to the extent that we could hardly imagine. In fact, a, a surprising extent to the Apostle Paul. And that out of an abundance of joy. We have little trials that those people, Macedonians, would think were nothing. They knew what it was like to be blamed for any natural calamity that took place. They knew persecution of being fired simply because you won't burn incense to the God of the particular guild you work in. They experienced being shunned by their community and were extremely poor, yet they had abundant joy. They knew this world is passing and that to be persecuted for the sake of Christ is to be richly blessed. If we're not experiencing the second fruit of the Spirit, which is joy, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. The second one is joy. It means there's something wrong with our spiritual life. Every time I get in my uh, grumpy mode, I get this little check that you are not experiencing the joy of the Lord. What does that mean? It means I'm out of the spirit. It means I'm walking in the flesh. Something's amiss in our spiritual life. Now, happiness is a different thing. It depends on circumstances. But joy is deeper than that. It comes from your spirit being in fellowship with the spirit of God. It sings, Jesus loves me. It knows all things work together for good to those who love God. It's a product of faith in Jesus who paid our ransom and promised us eternity in his loving, holy presence. It comes from eyes of faith, seeing it God at work and the glorious opportunity to join him in that work. It's knowing you're in the hands of almighty God and you could not be any safer. Out of that abundant joy, while suffering that extreme poverty, the grace of God produced an overflow in a wealth of generosity from them. They knew as bad as their circumstances were, the Jerusalem widows were even worse off still. So they embraced that grace of generosity and acted on it. Verse three, for they gave according to their means as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected. You know, I, I, it's, this is so descriptive. I imagine Paul led by the spirit sharing with the Macedonians about the need in Jerusalem and the conditions there, maybe to encourage them that, that some people are even worse off than they are and that they had things to be grateful for. You know, sometimes we think we have it tough until we meet someone going through something much greater. And hearing of the need, the congregation then wanted to help. And I, in my mind, I imagine Paul telling them that it's okay, we can raise the funds from wealthier churches Yet they insisted, earnestly begging for the favor of joining God in this relief effort. Can you imagine? Paul may have tried to turn it down out of sympathy for their condition. He may have said, no, really, other churches can afford it. You guys, you guys are, are, need to keep your own funds for, for just to eat. Please, no need for you to participate. I wasn't telling you so that you would give. And the elders answered, no, we want to give. 
Don't rob us of the privilege of participating in meeting this need of our sisters in Jerusalem. Paul tries to argue with them as they shove the money into his hand. And when Paul privately joins his team, he counts the offering and they're all amazed. How could they give so much? They barely have enough to eat. And then Paul has to explain that to the team how he tried to tell them he didn't want it and how they insisted on wanting to be a part of this work of God. Now that's my imagination, but the verse sounds like it had to be something similar to that. The last half of verse five, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. How is such magnanimous giving possible? Why is it that those who have the least seem to give the greatest percentage? It's because they gave themselves first to the Lord. That's where the grace of giving comes from. He is the great giver. Paul wrote in the first letter to the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? It all belongs to him. Everything came from him. Life, health, sight, mobility, sustenance, skills, finances, shelter, clothing, a mind, the Bible, salvation, eternal life, the Holy Spirit, fellowship. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. See what God has done. Oh, to be grateful as these Macedonians were. To beg for the opportunity to give. Grace can prompt our hearts, but it's the grateful heart that joy joyfully embraces the invitation and acts on it. But we must first give ourselves to the Lord. Verse five ends with the phrase that troubles me. It's not because I doubt it to be God's word, but because I've seen it so misused and abused. They gave themselves by the will of God to us. The Macedonian churches gave themselves first to the Lord and then to Paul and his team. If the verse didn't say first to the Lord, it would be blasphemy. We don't give ourselves to people first, but when we're following biblical leadership, it's by the will of God that we give ourselves to them. That's the same thing Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now that doesn't mean that we follow them blindly or do not test what they teach with the word of God. But the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 13, verse seven, to submit ourselves to the elders and obey them. And that is of course conditioned upon us following Christ and giving ourselves to the Lord first. Now that puts a huge responsibility on the shoulders of the elders to be sure that they humbly follow the Lord. Otherwise we end up with a cult of man, man followers. And that's the last thing that a godly leader would want. It would break their heart. Remember Paul and Barnabas in Lystra when they tried to worship them as gods and they rent their clothing. They were so grieved that they were trying to worship them and telling them we're not gods. 
but we, re we represent the God who made everything. Paul was bringing up the Macedonian church's commitment to him and to his team because the Corinthians had just had their relationship with Paul restored when Titus was last there in Corinth. And that was necessary before he asked them to give to that need in Jerusalem. They had to have faith that it was a spirit-led endeavor. They had to believe that this, this um, calling that God put on the heart of the Apostle Paul was, was God's call to them. If a church doesn't trust its elders to seek God's direction for the church, there can be no unity and little, if any, fruit that remains. Verse 6, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Paul asked Titus to remind the Corinthians about participating in this, this uh, collection for Jerusalem church. He was to be the one now to return and take up the collection. Now that the church had given themselves to Paul's ministry, he lets them know Titus is going to return to finish taking up that collection. Titus is a Greek name. And most of the church in Corinth consisted of Gentiles. It was the wisdom of God that had Paul send someone who could relate to them, to their struggles, to the, to the influences of the culture on the church, and help them see God's will to overcome those temptations and hardships. They trusted Titus, and he was the obvious one to complete the collection. Verse 7, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in, your, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So Paul's first letter told of the desire of the Corinthians for spiritual gifts and their emphasis on it. And here he commends them for how they excel in several of those gifts. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, but faith is also a spiritual gift. And those who have that gift of faith often find their prayers answered. Some people have that, that supernatural gift. The Corinthians also excel, expel, ex excelled in speech, like I'm not doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> they could clearly express the gospel in a way that could be understood. Their elders must have been excellent preachers, for they excelled in knowledge. Now, the gift of knowledge, Paul might be referring to a gift of the Spirit in which they would mean, that would mean supernatural insight into situations that people face. And one gift he mentions that I wish for every believer is the gift of earnestness. They were passionate about following the Lord. Earnest people often question if they're doing all that they should be doing for the Lord. I love it when I meet somebody who, who's, who's uh, a little troubled because they've been praying and they just feel like they're not doing enough because they have such a passion to do whatever God wants them to do. And they think they might be missing something. That seems like what, that gift that the Corinthians had. That's why the Corinthians may have been the, enticed, on the other hand, by the purveyors of those suggesting they had to keep the laws of Moses, you know, with the idea of, oh, maybe that's what we're not fully doing. The desire to do God's will is from God, 
but recognize that it's often found in everyday activities done to God's glory. You know, sometimes people say, I I just want to do more for God. I haven't found what he wants me to do. And yet they're already doing so much, helping their neighbors, uh, doing something at their local church to help the church. Maybe they're greeting or cleaning or doing something, but they don't see that as God's will for their life. And yet they're right in the middle of it. The last expression is written differently in some manuscripts. I just read you the ESV that has in our, they excel in our love for you. While some manuscripts say have in your, your love for us. And the latter fits the sentence structure better. They were excelling in their love for Paul and his team. Paul then challenges them to excel in this act of grace, also referring to generosity. It's my profound joy to say that this church excels in this gift. Very cute. Yeah, amen. I would give you an applause for being obedient to the Lord. It's very few churches give as much as we do percentage-wise to missions. And when the Gideons were here just a few weeks ago, it was one of the best offerings for the Gideons we'd ever taken up. Your giving is not only financial, but also in the form of meals on Wednesday night. In your time helping those in need, especially the elderly, you know, those our dear brothers that have passed recently and how some of you men invested so much of your time helping their wives take care of them in their final stages of life. Time is one of our most precious commodities. And despite busy schedules, many of you were willing to give what little extra time that you have. Many of you excel in this act of grace. There are so many needs. May God bless you for giving of yourselves to meet them as the hands and feet of Jesus. There will always be more needs than people with time available to meet them. Verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Paul's not commanding them to give. He's not saying you have to give. (laughs) He does not demand that we sacrifice. If we give grudgingly, it means our heart's not in it. Know that if any leadership demands you to give, they're out of line because God invites us to give so that we might receive a blessing. He loves a cheerful giver. The Corinthian offer, give, offering given in earnestness would demonstrate the genuineness of their love for the church in Jerusalem, for those brothers and sisters that were in need. John the Beloved wrote in one of his letters that if we see a brother in need and don't have compassion on him, how can we claim that the love of God is in us? Not only would a gift demonstrate their love was genuine, but it would also give others evidence of their faith as well. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Our example in everything is the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul could have used his own example, but he used the best one instead. Christ was rich is an understatement. All things belong to God. Jesus was rich in glory. He was rich in eternal things, but he forsook it all to become one of us, living in a poor family, laboring with his hands. In some ways, he amassed wealth again, wealth in friendships and in influence, but he even emptied himself of all that, leaving it all behind to hang forsaken on a cross so that we might be forgiven. The forgiveness provides true wealth, which is a relationship with God. His guidance in our lives, eternal abundant life, the promise of heaven, a family of fellow believers. Jesus told the disciples that for everything they gave up, they would receive a hundred times as much. And he's not just talking about the prosperity gospel, but about things that are eternal. Giving up the temporal for the eternal is great gain. This is really personal. Jesus gave up more than we can comprehend out of love for you. He went from the highest heights to the lowest depths to have you with him forever. No one could show greater love than that. And we need to meditate on this wonder because love produces love in our hearts. The more we realize how greatly we are loved, the more we will love him in return. Don't be afraid to let the fullness of his love take hold of your heart and your mind. The glorious King of heaven gave his all for us. How can we give less than our all in return? The fear of God's a great motivation to do what's right, but the love of God received in our hearts is even more powerful in transforming our lives. Jesus gave his all for you. What will you give him in return? You know, he, he asked for a marital kind of relationship. And when I do premarital counseling, I always remind the couples that it's not a 50-50 relationship. It's a 100-100 relationship. He gave his all for us. We need to give our all for him. Verse 10 and 11. And in this manner, I gave my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finished it doing it well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Paul tells them that giving will benefit them. It's that upside down world of the kingdom. They will receive this, that spirit of grace, gracious giving. They will participate with God in meeting that need in Jerusalem and receive heavenly rewards that are much more than earthly gain. Giving benefits us. I think if we realize this, we'd be more open to that grace giving. They'd started the collection a year earlier. Titus had reminded them of it, and now Paul's them. Paul tells them, finish the task. Pilate 
Titus is coming back to make that final collection. He wanted to see readiness backed by carrying out, carrying it out. Sometimes we're eager to do something sacrificial. We want to do it. We think about doing it, and then time goes by, and we realize we never got around to it. Paul's telling them, get her done. Verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. Paul added that they should do so out of what they have. You know, I've been to, I've attended churches in my past where they did faith promises. Anybody experience that? The beginning of the year, they say, okay, how much do you think God wants you to give this year? Let us know, or we're having this fundraiser or to do an expansion or whatever. How much do you think you can give? Tell us by faith what you believe God wants. And so they plan accordingly. Now, I don't know if there's anything wrong with that or not, but Paul's telling them not to wait until they have more or what they might have in the future, but to give out of what they have right now, complete the offering. Putting a sacrifice off into the future can be a way of avoiding it, or at least hoping it'll be less costly in the future. Do what God prompts you to do now. Don't wait. Giving throughout the scripture is, uh, is a percentage. In the Old Testament, they tithe. Now, that's not a set amount. The only exception, of course, was the temple tax and the redemption offering, which were quite small. A percentage is fair because it's proportional. It's less of a burden on the poor and a greater amount for those who can afford it. Remember the widow's might. Her tiny offering was greater in God's eyes than a huge donations of the wealthy. That's because she gave all that she had. Verse 13 and 14, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that they may be fairness. God's heart is for us to care for one another. He doesn't want you to be burdened financially so somebody else will have more than enough. When we have extra, it's usually so that we can help others. Perhaps the abundance of Jerusalem was that of teaching the life of Jesus that came from the apostles who were still there in Jerusalem. If they were providing spiritual food for the churches but lacked physical food, it was only right to meet that need. That's fairness. Verse 15, as it is written, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, but whoever gathered little had no lack. Now, Paul ends this paragraph with a passage from Exodus. As uh, in the call to worship, and as I, maybe you might get tired of me telling you over and over again, he always makes his point out of the Old Testament scriptures. He, he makes statements and he, he builds up to a point. He makes the point and then he quotes the verse that proves why the point is valid. And here he's pointing to the gathering of manna. It's one of those eternal truths that it comes out of the scripture 
but it's not directly speaking about it, and yet inside that you see God's heart. The Jews in the wilderness were supposed to gather two quarts of manna for each person every morning. Except on the day before Sabbath, they gathered a double amount. It seemed like, you know, some people gathered more, some people a little less. And yet the scripture says when they went to measure it out, everybody had exactly two quarts. Now, how is that possible except by a miracle of God? So Paul looks at that, what was happening there, and in, instead of just making it just about that, he says there's a principle here. God did a miracle for a purpose, and it's to show us that he likes everybody to have enough. Not too much, enough. How that miracle takes place in the church today is the form of gracious giving. We don't go out and collect our manna and find we have enough. We go out and we have our jobs and we find we have enough. But when we measure it, it's not just enough. Maybe it's a little lacking. Maybe it's a little abundant. But that's so we can help one another. And that miracle of the manna can take place through the grace of God in our lives. This church has several ways we give from the general offering. We have a mission fund, a portion of which goes to the local missions, Old Town Mission and Flagstaff, um, the rescue mission in Flagstaff, Sunshine Rescue Mission, and Hope Cottage in Flagstaff for the women and children. The rest which goes to support missionaries, sharing the good news of Jesus around the world. Um, from Canada to India to uh, Kenya to Uganda, all over the world. We also have a benevolent fund for the poor in our area that come, or tourists that are, I shouldn't say tourists because they're probably not tourists. They're passing through the homeless that pass through and need food. We have our little food cabinet and we help for one-time crises. But un unlike most churches, we also encourage you to give wherever you think the Lord is leading you to give. If he puts something in your heart, a neighbor in need, or a crisis being met by a Christian organization, maybe the earthquake in Turkey through Samaritan's Purse or whatever, do some background checking to make sure the funds are used properly and then give as the Lord leads you, wherever he leads you to give it. It's the Holy Spirit that should be directing our giving. We have a responsibility, of course, to provide for our own, to support the church, to save so as not to be a burden on others, but we also have this gift from God to be grace givers. In doing so, there's fairness. And as Paul described in verse 10, this benefits you. Only those who live a life of faith and belief in God's word will hear and then act on those promptings. When we do, the one who made us spiritually rich is glorified and our love is proven to be genuine. Amen. Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song and then I'll give the benediction.